0: you're back. That, that was kind of a, a long slog, wasn't it? Let's pick up the pace in the second segment here and move through things more quickly, starting with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And doggone at this time let's build in a bias for good news, starting with good news item number one, in which we note it was a good week for vegan activists last week. Vegan activists are out there staging sit-ins at Starbucks coffee shops to protest the higher price of drinks made with non-dairy, quote, milk, unquote. Turns out that in New York, for example, Starbucks charges $4.78 for a regular latte, but if you want a soy, almond, or coconut milk latte, it'll set you back 5.30. dollars Activist Julia Bruick was quoted as saying the higher price is a tax on veganism. I do have to confess, I know some people who think a tax on veganism is a good idea. Ms. Bruick also argues that it is both racist and ableist. Racist, since a majority of people of color can't digest lactose, and ableist because it ignores food allergies. I don't know, we got a little bit of a problem with this. It's 52 cents more a cup if you want an alternative milk. Hard to see that as racist. But, you know, we like to hear from you, dear listener. What do you think about that? Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Is charging 52 more cents a cup ableist? And, you know, milk is cheaper than those other... uh, Anyway, let's hear from the public. We'd also note it was a good week last week for tailwinds, with the report that a British Airways passenger jet made the trip from New York to London in slightly less than five hours. That is a new record for aircraft that are subsonic. Assisted by the transatlantic jet stream, the flight arrived one hour, 42 minutes early. We haven't done the math, but I think that they, you know, did break the speed of sound. Well, the ground speed of the speed of sound. And it was apparently a good week for final pieces of advice with the report that actor Michael Douglas, whose legendary father, Kirk, died last week at the age of 103, told a rally of former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg that that in the final moments of his life, his dad whispered the words, Mike can get it done. Well, maybe, Kirk. (laughs) We'll see how much Mike can get done in the not-too-distant future. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for your planning for the afterlife, maybe with the news that an Ohio minister says he plans to sue the NFL over its racy Super Bowl halftime show featuring Shakira and Jennifer Lopez. Minister Dave Dogmeyer claims it was a soft porn performance that may prevent him from getting into the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, said Meyer, and we're not sure what he meant by this, when you go on a porn website, you're not looking for 50-year-old women. I guess my question is, why is a minister looking for women who are younger than 50 on a porn site? But hey, that's just me. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Justice, or perhaps the Department of Justice, with the news that United States Attorney General William Barr has notified his Justice Department officials that they cannot open investigations into presidential candidates or their campaigns without his personal approval. This directive follows a report from Inspector General Michael Horowitz, in which Horowitz criticized the FBI for opening a probe into former Trump campaign associate Carter Page. Remember here from the last segment, Stan Nunberg thinks he probably colluded with the Russians. Well, maybe there's some good in this. Reportedly, investigations into Senate and House campaigns and foreign campaign contributions will now require prior consultation with an assistant attorney general. And since Mr. Millen is getting sick of hearing me talk about Trump and Beetlejuice. and Beetlejuice, so let's change the subject and instead talk about lichen. Yay! Last week I found myself in the one of the East Bay Regional Parks down in the Bay Area, specifically Coyote Hills, and was rather impressed to observe on some of the rock's dotting the hillside some beautiful examples of lichen. They were all different colors, orange ones, red ones, brown ones, and I had to admire the surfaces upon which they earned their living, which in this case was bare rock. It occurred to me that we don't give lichen enough thought. The truth is, I'll wager that very few of you have ever given them any thought, which is why I think we should need to devote a minute or two to the subject of lichen. In particular, Symbiosis in lichen. You may remember that word, symbiosis, from your biology class. It describes two different types of organisms living together in an arrangement that benefits both parties. Well, lichen are two very, very different types of organisms cohabiting. Fungi, we're all familiar with. The fungi more or less provide the housing for this uh, complex, symbiotic Pair of organisms. They, uh, they provide the, uh, the fibers that dig into the rock and extract the minerals and a surface layer on top to provide protection. In between those layers, you have algae. That's where the color comes in. The algae are busy photosynthesizing. So they're using the sun's energy to make sugars, which feed the fungi, and the fungi are extracting the minerals to feed the algae. Works out nicely. But as we were amusing over this, uh, my friend Gordon on Google pulled up the reference that the algae part of the lichen can be of two types. Turns out that 90% of of all known lichen have green algae as one of the symbionts. These algae are complex organisms in that their cells are like ours. They have nuclei. Think of an egg and its yolk, which is a, a very large cell. To my surprise, because I don't remember learning this back in biology many decades ago, perhaps I did. If I did, I forgot it. But it turns out that the other eight to ten percent of lichen have algae in them, but are not like you and I. Their cells do not have nuclei; they're crude, like bacteria. They're also known as blue-green algae or cyanobacteria, more properly. Now, from a biological standpoint, cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, and green algae are pretty different. Which, wouldn't you know it, leads me to the February 1st issue of New Scientist magazine, the headline of which is, Meet Your Long-Lost Ancestors. Now bear with me in all of this, because the nomenclature has changed over the years, and there's, there's been an evolution of how we describe things. So what I was a moment ago describing as cyanobacteria, this article prefers to call Archaea. The article notes that textbooks will tell you that shortly after biological cells appeared on Earth, which is a long time ago, 3.5 billion years ago, there was a parting of the ways that sent life down three distinct branches. One led to bacteria, single-celled organisms, which as you know, are only visible through the microscope. A second led to a similarly simple but biologically distinct microbe called archaea. The final branch led to complex organisms called eukaryotes, which includes algae, which includes green algae, yeasts, jellyfish, hippopotamuses, and us. But this three pronged picture may be changing. Back in 2008, a bunch of researchers examining hydrothermal chimneys at the bottom of the Norwegian Sea found some strange organisms down there, which, fortunately for us, they were able to grow. And what do you know, this type of archaea seemed vaguely reminiscent of those eukaryotic cells to which we belong, more than the, you know, traditional blue-green algae, leading some biologists to speculate that, in fact, there may be just two great domains of life here on Earth, bacteria and archaea. By this new way of reckoning, eukaryotes, like us, would just be an evolutionary branch within the archaea. Now, whatever organisms were around here on planet Earth three-plus billion years ago are pretty much gone. We have only their descendants to work with. But examining the genes of all the descendants, all the different forms of life on Earth, have led some of these people to conclude that there may be something to this theory. Martin Emily at Newcastle University in the UK analyzed dozens of genes that occur in existing bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes to work out how the three groups interrelate. To their surprise, the results strongly favored this hypothesis of a two-domain tree. I'm not going to say too much more about this. I don't think anybody's going to lose sleep over this, but it circles me back to the lichen, which just a couple days ago surprised me at the possibility of the algae part being so different. And uh, upon revisiting, it turns out, well, maybe those two algae components are not so different. In the field of biology, like so many other fields. There's lumpers and there's splitters. A century or so ago, the world was divided into animal, vegetable, and mineral. Then they discovered microorganisms, and that really screwed things up. And ladies and gentlemen, we're still trying to figure it all out. Oh, but before we leave the topic, if you are losing any sleep over fungal evolution, you should note that the same issue of New Scientist reports, that the oldest confirmed fungal fossils have been identified in a Belgian museum and they're between 715 and 810 million years old, making them more than 250 million years older than the previous confirmed record holder, which I thought were some of those shiitake mushrooms I brought home from Whole Foods last week. Here's an item I didn't get around to at Christmas that is deserving of, I don't know, 30 seconds. Dateline, Bethlehem, West Bank, a.k.a. Palestine. A tiny wooden relic that some Christians believe to be part of Jesus's manger arrived Saturday in its permanent home in the biblical city of Bethlehem 1400 years after it was sent to Rome as a gift to the pope. Now sending it to Rome 1400 years ago means that 600 years after the alleged birth of Jesus in a manger somebody went to Bethlehem and went, "Hey, I think this piece of wood must have come from that manger." We find that an unlikely proposition. Also from the miscellaneous file, in this case, Uncle John's bathroom reader, we have the little-known fact that the word factoid was, in fact, coined by author Norman Mailer. The story is that in 1973, while writing his biography of Marilyn Monroe, Mailer was trying to describe made-up facts that are believed because they're printed in a magazine or newspaper, He combined the word fact with the suffix oid, which means like. The term held this invented fact meaning until the 1990s, when CNN headline news began displaying trivia and statistics on the screen beneath the title factoid. Result, it now also means little fact. You know, we prefer the original meaning, as invented by Norman Mailer and practiced by Kellyanne Conway. And, you know, I think everybody can agree that politicians on a state level sometimes you know, have a difficult job before them. They have to sit down with the public and assure them that they're working for their benefit and then go out and enact legislation that benefits their corporate sponsors. But as they do conduct their official business from whatever state they're in, they sometimes feel the need to come up with official items like mottos, nicknames, traditional dishes. I'm sure you're hungry to know what some of these are. Therefore, we're happy to inform you that the official state beverage of Indiana is water. In Nebraska, the official state beverage is Kool-Aid. In Texas, they decided they needed an official state vehicle. And in Texas, that official vehicle is the chuck wagon. Up in the state of Washington, legislators felt the need to certify an official state Rock song. They had a lot to choose from up there in Washington, but they decided to go with Louie Louie. <laughs> not sure why it is that in the state of Georgia they felt the need to designate an official state possum, but they did. And the official Georgia state possum is Pogo, the possum from Walt Kelly's long-running comic strip of the same name. If I asked you, what do you think the official neckwear of Arizona is, I'm pretty sure you'd come back with the bolo tie, and you'd be right. And we're going to close with one that requires some follow-up. We're to do the Uncle John's bathroom reader, the official cartoon character of the state of Oklahoma is Gusty, described as a raindrop-headed figure drawn nightly on the weather map on a Tulsa News broadcast by weatherman Don Woods. Now, since Radio Parallax's friend Gary Chu used to do the weather in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we will inquire with him as to what he knows about Gusty. Now, we always enjoy receiving correspondence from the listenership. I printed up one article here that was sent in titled, Which Tech Company is Really the Most Evil? This was sent to me by Edward McMillan. We really should spend some time on this one. But we're running a little short today, so let's just name the top three, shall we? The subheadline of this piece is, Which Tech Companies Are Really Doing the Most Harm? Here are the 30 Most Dangerous Ranked by the People Who Know. Number three is Alphabet, the invented parent company of Google. It's slogan, don't be evil, back in 2015 for a reason. Number two on the list, wouldn't you know it, Facebook. Noted one respondent. It's far more powerful than any government. Its products are so varied and far-reaching that neither its users nor founders can keep track of its prying sprawl or purpose. And number one among the most evil tech companies is, according to this piece, Amazon. Why is it number one? Well, in brief, respondents noted that it, number one, contributed to the death of local stores, services, journalism, music, communality around the globe. Two, it's focused on precarious and de-skilled labor with reportedly terrible working conditions. Three, it supports police surveillance with its ring doorbells and Alexa devices. Four, it's racked up a massive carbon footprint. Five, it's failed to moderate what's on its platform, resulting in a glut of dangerous fakes. And six, has a famously hostile workplace culture. Oh, and there's seven. It's evaded taxation with shady categorizations of assets and offshore tax havens. Maybe we can talk more about that when we return to the subject of Mark Levin. So let's do tech. I can't say that I was ever a fan of the TV show Friends, but I was intrigued by what one of its former stars had to say about it. David Schwimmer has a theory on why the show remains popular. He told The Guardian, It's the lack of iPhones. It was a time right before the world profoundly changed in terms of social media. Schwimmer recalls sitting in a London restaurant recently and watching five friend's age women interact the way young people do today. He said they were all on their phones and then sharing what they were writing or watching. All of their focus was on their devices. Rings a bell. When I was sitting on one of the park benches at Coyote Hills a couple days ago, there was a nice, pleasant-looking young couple sitting there. The guy pulled up something on his phone, showed the gal. The gal pulled up something on her phone, showed the guy. They giggled together. Said David Schwimmer, that's why Friends is nostalgic. It was six people who actually sat and talked to each other. I guess the Guardian pointed out to Schwimmer that some younger viewers have been shocked to see that the six main characters are all white and that they make unwoke jokes about gays and women's weights. Said Schwimmer, I don't care. The truth also is that the show was groundbreaking in its time. The show depicted sexually liberated women and gay marriage. I guess his character dated black and Asian American women. Said the actor, the problem today is that so little is taken in context. Here's a remark we think is in context. Apparently Joe Biden described Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg as, quote, a real problem, unquote. Radio Parallax is unable to confirm that Zuckerberg's response was, oh yeah, well Biden's soon to be known as a former candidate. And in this mold, we should report that a top Facebook executive has told employees that they had a moral duty not to tip the scales against President Trump in the election. This is according to Kevin Roos in the New York Times. Andrew Bosworth Quote, longtime confidant, unquote, of CEO Mark Zuckerberg wrote in a meandering 2,500 word post a couple weeks back that as a liberal, he found himself wanting to use the social network's powerful platform against Trump by fact checking partisan misinformation. But Bosworth said he agreed with Zuckerberg's decision not to limit political ads, comparing the temptation to use Facebook's powers to the corrupting influence of Sauron's ring in the Lord of the Rings. Well, I'm pretty sure one thing, if there's one ring to rule them all, it ain't going to be on Joe Biden's finger or Elizabeth Warren or possibly Bernie Sanders or anyone who says they're fed up with the tech industry and social media and Facebook's chicanery. We'll see. Now, Facebook did announce recently that it will ban deep fake videos that are edited or synthesized by technologies like artificial intelligence in a way that average users would not easily spot. It's according to the Washington Post. Critics, however, called the new policy enacted amid fears of manipulation in the 2020 elections too limited. Facebook stopped short of prohibiting videos manipulated for the point of parody or satire, which means that the controversial altered video of Nancy Pelosi that was slowed and distorted to make her seem inebriated would likely still be allowed. And this deep fake policy isn't going to stop users from mislabeling footage, splicing dialogue, or taking quotes out of context. And on the scary facial recognition front, there's this news item. Law enforcement in San Diego last month ended a seven-year experiment with facial recognition after it failed to produce a single arrest or prosecution. Since 2012... Police in San Diego had used a sophisticated network of as many as 1,300 mobile cameras in smartphones and tablets and compiled a database of 65,000 face scans. Software was able to compare identifiers like ear shape, hair, skin, color, and the distance between the eyes to a mugshot database of 1.8 million images collected by the San Diego County Sheriff's Office. But the program was criticized for photographing people without their consent. And it also proved ineffectual. A San Diego police spokesman said he is unaware of any success stories stemming from the program. There seems to be little doubt that facial recognition technology can work. The question we all have to ask is, what is it working for? And here's another question to ask of Silicon Valley. This was asked by Derek Thompson in TheAtlantic.com. It is, whatever happened to the new industrial revolution that big tech promised us? For decades, we've turned to Silicon Valley to show us the future of American endeavor. But while tech's innovations have made a handful of people quite rich, they haven't offset manufacturing's decline or done anything for deteriorating infrastructure or climate change or low economic growth or rising economic inequality. And Americans today are far less likely to start a company than they were in the 1980s. It's not hard to understand why. Silicon Valley has produced Uber monopolies that have grown so large that they scare off entrepreneurs in their path. Much of Silicon Valley's efforts are now devoted to companies such as Uber, DoorDash, and TaskRabbit that make yuppie life convenient. In the next decade, I'd like to see Silicon Valley deepen its investments in biotech, or construction automation, or carbon capture, said Derek Thompson. It's time to find out what could be accomplished if American ingenuity came back down to Earth. Speaking of coming back down to Earth, apparently some people are looking into the possibility of finding a way to sue Elon Musk and SpaceX for its proposed light pollution of putting 30,000 satellites in Earth orbit, and thus robbing the gift of the night sky, the unadulterated night sky from the human race. Now, we do note that one option available to you, if you're a tech giant and you're being sued, is to have your lawyers lie. Article in the East Bay Times by Ethan Barron about the prosecution of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes notes that after U.S. District Court Judge Edward Davila referred to prosecutors' claims that Theranos' blood testing technology never worked, Holmes' lawyer Amy Saharia responded, That's not true. Adding, there were no problems with them whatsoever. Adding, all tests have error rates. The government should not be permitted to try a case with anecdotes when incorrect blood tests are a fact of life. Yes, incorrect tests are a fact of life. But when your technology doesn't work and you lie about it, that's a different story. Now let's close with two final items of technology making your life better. Not. The railroad industry is hoping that a newly developed automatic braking system will allow them to reduce the train crews from two to one. This might be the same group of folks that wants to reduce your cabin crew in commercial aircraft. There's some that want to reduce it to zero. I'm pretty sure that no computer programmer is going to put something into the software that's going to do what Captain Sullenberger did, which was land the damn plane on the Hudson. And let's close with this from The Economist. I'm going to try and read this in a bouncy, upbeat way. Before pulling the trigger, a sniper planning to assassinate an enemy operative must be sure the right person's in the crosshairs. Western forces commonly use software that compares a subject's facial features or gait with those recorded in libraries of biometric data compiled by police and intelligence agencies. Such technology can, however, be foiled by a disguise— also head covering, or even an affected limp. For this reason, America's Special Operations Command, SOC, which oversees the units responsible for such assassination operations in the various arms of America's forces, have long wanted extra ways to confirm a potential target's identity. They've now got a new system. It's called Jetson. It's able to measure from up to 200 meters away the minute vibrations induced in clothing by someone's heartbeat. Since hearts differ in both shape and contraction pattern, the details of heartbeats differ too. The effect of this on the fabric of garments produces what Ideal Innovations, a firm involved in the Jetson project, calls a heartprint, a pattern recognition sufficiently distinctive to confirm someone's identity. This is so one can then put a bullet in the identified heart. And yet there are still some people out there that doubt that technology is making our lives better. Shot to the heart and you're blade. darling you give love a bad name This has been Radio Parallax produced by Edward McMillan. gotta go see you next week.